All right, Revelation 20. Let's get started, or else we'll never get finished, and then I will break my promise. I will again read the entire uh, passage we've been considering for the last few sessions. So verses 1 through 10. So chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever. So there you go. Chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. I'll try to keep the recap short. Um, if you still have your um, diagram of the four views, I'm not going to go over them again tonight, but just you know, in case you have it so you have it handy. Uh, I went over it the last two times, so we don't need, I don't think we need to go over it again. So I'll just try to keep the, brief, uh, the recap on the first six verses fairly brief. Again, we're in this chapter here. This is the last of the cycle of visions that we see between chapter 4 and chapter 20 in Revelation. Revelation begins with a prologue in which you see the vision of the exalted Christ. He reveals himself to John, not as the humble uh, servant, not cloaked, not having his glory veiled or cloaked, but he appears to him as the glorified risen Christ. And John, of course, has that vision, and he is uh, amazed at it. I mean, I think that's probably understating the fact. He falls down as though dead when he sees the glorified Christ, but then Christ lays a hand on him and tells him, you need to write down what I'm about to tell you. Then he writes a letter to seven churches, and, and, and telling them that Jesus is here, Jesus will return. And it's a warning letter, not only to prep them for what is about to come, but also that they need to clean up their act. The church needs to clean up their act. So that's chapters 2 and 3. And then from 4 until 20 is what I've been trying to argue, at least, is, is not so much a sequence of events that occur one after the other, but a cycle, a, a, a collection of visions 
that are all looking at the same period of time. Again, if you do have your handout here, that period of time would be called the church age. All of these things, all of these visions are looking at the church age. They are looking at it from different perspectives, different camera angles, if you will, with different emphases and focuses uh, on them. And when you finally get to the seventh here, we're in the seventh cycle, uh, of course, seven being the number of completion. This is the last one. And it shows, uh, it really takes a view of this church age sort of from a 30,000-foot view and looks at it from beginning, middle, and end. That's what we see here, these three sections, how it begins, what is characterized during this period, and then how it will end. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, the ending of it. But the, the, the vision begins, the millennium begins with the binding of Satan. Satan is bound. He is bound for the purpose so that he may not deceive the nations until this period that the millennium is, is depicting is over. So he is bound. He is, he is prohibited from deceiving the nations. He is prohibited from gathering the nations together so that the church can do its work, so that the saints can be gathered, so that the, um, the, the plans of God can be fulfilled, if you will. And during this period... This period is characterized as one in which the church, though being a martyred entity, the church, though being one that is sort of being attacked, being persecuted, is also living, in a sense, in glory because we see here that John sees this period of time as one in which the martyred saints are reigning and ruling with Christ during this period those who have not worshipped the beast, those who have been beheaded for their witness uh, to Jesus and to the word of God, who have not succumbed to the lures of the beast, who have not given into worshipping the beast, they are reigning and ruling with him. And John says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. And we marked that there is a connection between the first resurrection And the second death, uh, both of those are spiritual in nature, meaning that the second death isn't a death in which the body goes into the ground. It's a death in which the body, which is constituted for eternal judgment, is suffering that eternal judgment forever and ever. That is the second death. We see that at the end of the, the passage in chapter 14 and 15. When you are cast into the lake of fire, that is the second death. So if you're a partaker of the first resurrection, you are blessed and holy. Why? Because you're not going to be cast into the lake of fire at the end when Christ comes to judge all things. So again, that is the recap. And you're probably thinking, well, man, you went through that in about seven minutes. Why did you take two weeks to go through it? Because there's a lot here. Okay, there's a lot here. And I was trying to show how the various millennial views handle some of these things, because in each of these sections, there's something in them that, depending on the millennial view that you hold, will interpret these things differently, one being the binding of Satan, the second being the first resurrection. But, again, I want to, take, I want to step back a little bit and say, as I've been saying all along, Um, we need to exercise humility and charity when we come to this passage again because Christians throughout the history of the church have disagreed on the interpretation of this. 
And disagreeing on the interpretation of this passage is not a cause for casting someone out. It is not a cause for division. It is just something that we need to understand that people are going to come at this passage from different perspectives. But I do want to indicate, and I do want to say one more thing before we get into the passage, is the purpose behind not just this vision, but the entire book as a whole, really. Remember, John is writing on behalf of Christ to beleaguered churches. Okay, This letter, again, goes out to the seven churches. We saw that earlier. There, you know, each of those letters is addressed to one of those churches. And this entire vision is meant, and this entire book really is meant to, to be given to them. And why is it meant to be given to them? To prepare them for what is coming ahead. To prepare them for the fact that they are going to suffer persecution for a while. To prepare them for the fact that these beastly kingdoms are going to rise and they're going to exercise uh, their evil authority in the world. To, to alert them to the fact that they are going to be suffering uh, martyrdom. They're going to be suffering persecution. They're going to be suffering all kinds of things. But during this entire period of time, they are going to be sealed and protected by God because that is his plan. And that it will end when Christ returns at the end of the age in glory to defeat both his and our enemies. So it's a message of hope. It's a message to, perse- you know, to persevere in hope during this time. So it's to prepare them and to, and to help them to understand that no matter how dark things get, no matter how bad seems, things seem to their own eyes, they are going to be conquerors. Right? At the end of each of those seven letters, Jesus will say to the church, to the one who conquers, and there's a special blessing at the end of each of those letters, to the one who conquers, to the overcomer, and, and it is, you know, be granted to him to all sorts of things. So, again, just the general theme of this book is meant to inspire hope, it is meant to be a blessing to those who hear and read it, it is meant to encourage us in our faith even now. So as we come into this passage tonight, verses 7 through 10, as we finish this section on the millennium, um, we're going to see here, essentially, the last battle. This is the final satanic rebellion. It's going to be crushed. Uh, it's going to be crushed like we've seen hints of it previously in the book of Revelation. It's going to be, it's going to be a one-sided battle. Okay? It'll be like taking the Nebraska championship teams from the mid-90s and putting them up against the Sutton High School football team, eight-man squad. Okay, that's how, that's how one-sided this victory is going to be. It's not even going to be close. We've seen the final battle uh, prefigured in other uh, instances throughout the book of Revelation, and even though the nations gather against the Lord's anointed and against the Lord's people, what happens? They are immediately destroyed without even thinking about it. There's no final battle like you see in some of these big movies. You know, the, the forces you know, ebb and flow, and then there's like the, a great charge for victory at the end, and the forces of good win at the end after a long-fought battle. It's going to be one where Jesus comes down, and all of a sudden, boom, everything is done. Because who can stand against God? Nobody can stand against God. It's going to be... Again, a a one-sided victory. I I don't know how else to say it, and I'm saying it very poorly at that. But again, just 
a theme to hold really the entire passage we've been looking at here, uh, verses 1 through 10, is that during this thousand-year reign, the church is going to be able to do her work. The church is going to be able to accomplish the task that God set it to do. And, and she's going to be able to do her work. Why? Because Satan is bound, because of Satan's reign, and because the nations are currently being prevented from rebelling. But as we come into this passage, they're going to finally uh, rebel. So um, there's really only two points left on the handout. I added a second point tonight, kind of a recap of the millennium. But we've already looked at the binding of Satan in verses 1 through 3. We've already seen the reigning of the saints in verses 4 through 6. And now we're going to see uh, the crushing of the rebellion in verses 7 through 10. Let me read those verses one more time for you. So now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever. Now as you read that, and as I read it again, you know, when you get up to like this, you know, the first half of verse 9, when you read 7, 8, and the first half of verse 9, it sounds pretty bleak, right? You know, uh, Satan's released from his prison. He gathers the armies. They're, they're this vast number, as number, uh, hu huge as the sand of the sea, and they surround the camp of the saints. And it seems pretty bleak until you read the second half of verse 9, and all of a sudden fire comes down and, and, and just destroys them all with, with a, without even thinking. But, so as we look at this passage here, of course the first question that comes to my mind when I was reading through it and studying for it is, why is Satan released after the thousand years? Because depending on how you, it really doesn't matter how you view the binding of Satan, whether he is completely and utterly bound, as in the pre-mill view, where he is unable to do anything, or whether he's just hindered, like in the post-mill and ah-mill view, from deceiving the nations. Either way, you might want to ask, why is Satan released? He's already in, he's in prison. Why let him go? I mean, he's, he's bound. He's not, do, he's not able to do anything, so, so why let him out so that he can do something? Well, the answer to that question is so that he can be judged, so that Satan can be judged. But also he's bound, you know, the purpose for his binding, of course, is so that the, the saints can be gathered, the elect can be gathered, and once that's done, Satan is released. I was thinking of this passage earlier. Um, it's at the end of Luke's, version of the um, Olivet Discourse, which is found in Luke chapter 21, I believe. Luke chapter 21. And starting in verse 20, I'm going to read from 20 to 24. Luke adds a little bit to the Olivet Discourse. Um, again, Luke is typically seen as Paul's writer. So, you know, he would have perhaps gotten this from Paul, would have put it, you know, of course, when you read the first part of Luke, he would have, you know, he did his research, right? He went and talked to a lot of people and, 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 and 
you know, accumulated his notes and wrote his gospel. So he's the, he's the historian of the bunch. He's the one who um, is one of the most meticulous historians, not only in the Bible, but also in the world. I mean, there were some um, atheist scholars who attempted to disprove the Bible, and they went through Luke's account, and they went passage by passage and confirmed everything Luke had, had written in his account. And then that person then said, well, I guess I have to believe this now. <laughs> so that's how good of a historian Luke is. But in his account of the Olivet Discourse, in chapter 21, starting in verse 20, he writes, and this is Jesus speaking, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. So he's, uh, Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Days of vengeance on God's, you know, God's people, his nation, Israel, because they rejected him and they rejected their Messiah. Verse 23, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon his people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's talking about this period, the church age. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Until the ingathering of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We see Paul record a very similar thing at the end of Romans 11. Romans 11 where he talks about um, Israel's rejection, how Israel's rejection is not final, but how they have been blinded for the time being. In Romans 11, um, I will read starting in verse, well, I'll just read verse 25 of Romans 11. Of course, Romans 11 is at the end of that section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, in which Paul, in a sense, takes a, a break from his discussion in Romans to talk about the future of Israel, his brothers according to the flesh. That's what he says in chapter 9. So this entire time throughout this section here, he is talking about the nation of Israel. And in verse 25 of chapter 11, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So this is something that was hidden in the past and is now being revealed, lest you should be wise in your own eyes and your own opinion. And the mystery is this, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then he goes on to say how eventually then all Israel will be saved. But the point here is, again, this is the time of the Gentiles, the time of Gentile inclusion, as God is now, the gospel is going forth, Satan is no longer able to deceive, the gospel can go forth to all nations, all tribes, tongues, and nations, and gather in all these people. And when that time has come to its fullness, then the end comes. That's what Jesus says in Matthew's version of the Olivet Discourse. He says the gospel must be proclaimed to all the world, and then the end will come. So Satan, in a sense, is bound for that to happen so that the church can do her work, but then he is released afterwards so that he can be judged. Okay, It's like if you have a, 
a death row inmate. Okay, you could say, well, he's in prison, he's not hurting anybody, but justice has to be done. And justice will not be done until that death row inmate is finally sent to the chair or whatever method of execution you prefer, and, and judgment is actually executed on him. And that's what's going to happen here. So he's released so that he can be judged. He's also released so he can then gather the nations, which is what we'll see here. He goes out to do what he has been prevented from doing in, verse, uh, in, in verses 2 and 3. He was bound so that he could not deceive the nations, and now he's released so he can go out and deceive the nations. This is uh, depicted in Revelation 16, verse 14. The battle of Armageddon, the sixth bowl. As the Euphrates River is dried up, we see the battle of Armageddon. And um, in that vision, as the bowl is poured out, you see not only the dragon, Satan, but you see his two henchmen, the beast and the false prophet, and these, these spirits like frogs come out of their mouths. They are deceiving spirits. They are the spirits of demons. And they perform signs. And what do they do? Well, they go out in verse 14, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So they are gathered for that final battle in chapter 16, the battle of Armageddon. And here it's the same thing. And here Satan goes out and he gathers all of the nations together for the final battle. This is the, the gathering of all the anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-church forces and kingdoms, all for this final battle. And we've seen the final battle uh, again, like I said, uh, depicted throughout. Uh, it's in the seventh trumpet. Uh, in chapter 11 of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 15, when the seventh trumpet is proclaimed, or it, when it's sounded, uh, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now that's a very brief depiction of the final battle, but what, it, what we see in that passage is that when that seventh trumpet is sounded, we see that all of the kingdoms that are arrayed against God have become now the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. So they are defeated in this battle, and they are turned over, and Christ rules forever and ever. We looked at chapter 16 uh, just a few seconds ago, but in the seventh bowl, when the seventh bowl is poured out, in verse 17 of chapter 16, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. What's done? Judgment is done. The battle has been won. They were gathered to Armageddon, and the battle has been won. Verse 18, there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. We've seen this language before. It speaks of judgment language, this shaking of the heavens and earth. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the, city of, the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon, we saw the destruction of Babylon in full in verses, or chapters 17 and 18. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail fell from heaven upon men, 
each hailstone about the weight of a talent. So this great devastation. And then men, of course, when judgment is, is poured out on the earth, do they repent? No. <laughs> no, they don't repent. Why? Because they're fallen, because they're wicked, because they're God-haters. They don't repent. What do they do? They, re- they blaspheme God. They blaspheme God because of the plague of hail, since the plague was exceeding great. We see the final battle again in chapter 19, at the end of chapter 19. Where in verse 17, of course, this is Christ returning on his great white horse with the armies of heaven behind him. And in chapter 19, verse 17, an angel is seen standing in the sun and he cries with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heavens, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. So here's this angel. The battle hasn't even been fought yet. And the angel's like, come on, all the vultures, all the carrion birds, prepare yourselves. Don't eat, don't overeat, okay? Don't spoil your supper because what's going to happen is there's going to be this great battle and you're going to be able to feast on the flesh and bones of the wicked. So the supper of God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. And of course, then John goes on, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And as before, is there this great epic battle? No. It says the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, so on, and they were thrown into the lake of burning fire and brimstone. So they are gathered for this final battle, and this final battle has been seen throughout the book of Revelation, and here we're going to see it again. So when he goes out in verse 8 to deceive the nations, he says there, he is here to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And he says Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog. So who are Gog and Magog? I didn't have time to study this, so maybe you guys can help me out a little bit. Who are Gog? I'm kidding. I did study this one a little bit. Gog and Magog. Are they actual nations? Are they nations that exist today? Are they representative of something? Well, we only see Gog appear here in Revelation chapter 20 and in Ezekiel 38. So I'm going to ask you, this is, this is sword drill time, right? We've been turning to a lot of passages, but uh, this is why the, the people, the reformers, said that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Uh, we use God's word to interpret God's word. So take your uh, turn to Ezekiel 38. That should be somewhere in the middle of your Bible. Now I'm going to read a lot of names here. And there's going to be a quiz at the end of the lesson on who the names... No, I'm kidding. There's not going to be a quiz on the names. But just... Keep your mind on the names, okay? So, and this is going to be a lengthy passage I'm going to read. So, buckle in. Ezekiel 38. I'll wait till you guys are there, because I don't want to start without you all. When I stop hearing Bible pages turn, I'll start. (laughs) 
I still hear a page or two. I think we're all there. It sounds like we're all there. All right, I think we're all there. Okay, good. All right, Ezekiel 38. Now this is God, of course, speaking through his prophet Ezekiel. So we see here in 38, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh. I'm going to stop there for a second. Who there has something called the chief prince of Meshach? Instead of the prince of Rosh. Do you have that? Yeah, ESV has the chief prince of Meshach. If you have a New King James, you might have a footnote there that says the chief prince of Meshach, also in verse 3. The word there, Rosh, is the Hebrew word Rosh. Okay? <laughs> so I'm sure that helps. <laughs> but it's the Hebrew word that means first or head or chief. If you've heard of the, uh, does anybody know what the, the Hebrew New Year is called? Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. Okay, Rosh Hashanah. It's head or chief or first of the year. That's literally what it means. So Rosh is the Hebrew word for chief. So if you have a translation that says Magog, the chief prince of Meshach, they're translating that word Rosh as head or chief or first. Uh, looks like the New King James just left it uh, and transliterated it. Anyway, I'll go on. So... Set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, 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 I'll try to, I'll try to be consistent, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Stop there for a moment. So here's God speaking to the prophet saying he's going to draw them out. Right? This is again God sovereign over all things. He's going to draw the nations out and gather them together. A great company. Verse 5. They have allies. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Gomer, and all of its troops, the house of Togomar, from the far north, and all its troops. Many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. Pause there. That's Israel, gathered back to her homeland. Uh, so she is gathered in these great nations led by Gog, uh, the, the prince of Magog. They're going to gather together against the people of God, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. And you will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, and you and all your troops and many peoples with you. So... The people of God have been reestablished in their home, and now God draws all the nations to come against them. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. They will be deceived by the dragon, as we will see. 
you will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder, to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are against that are again inhabited, and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, and to take great plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day, when my people Israel dwell safely, you will not know it, or will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days to be my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? Verse 18, And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are in, on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall on the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus, I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 39. Told you this is going to be long. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. That sounds like the end of chapter 19. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and all those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them profane my holy name any more. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and spears, 
and they will make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood from the fire, sorry, wood from the field, nor cut down any from the forest, because they will make fires with the weapons, and they will plunder those who plundered them, and pillage those who pillage them, says the Lord. All right, I'll stop there. So this is the passage in which, through the prophet Ezekiel, we see God saying to this individual, Gog, G-O-G, I have to be very careful because God and Gog sound alike. <laughs> okay. God says to this individual called, named Gog that he is against him. And he's going to take him and all of his allies and he's going to draw them up to the people of God and then he's going to defeat them. And he's going to defeat them in words that are very similar to what we see in Revelation 19 and in Revelation 20. Now when I said I was going to read a lot of names, I, I meant that, and, and now I'm going to turn to another passage. And we're going to see some of these names again because we had all these names here, Meshach, Tubal, um, Gomer, and, and so on and so forth. Now these names appear in other places in the, in the Bible, in particular in Genesis chapter 10. You're like, where are you going with all this? Well, there's a method to my madness. There is a method to my madness. Revelate, or not, Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 is often referred to as the table of nations. The reason it's called the table of nations is because this is the, uh, the genealogies of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Right? So you have Noah was, was saved in the flood. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. So eight people saved in the flood. And then once the flood was done, uh, they, they are the only human beings left on the planet. And God then sort of, in a way, reiterates to them the same uh, command he gave to Adam in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And what we see in chapter 10 is the descendants of the three sons of, of Noah, particularly the first, starting in verse 2, the sons of Japheth. Now, Japheth, I believe, is the youngest of the three. And we see in chapter 10, verse 2, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, that's a name we heard, Magog, that's definitely a name we heard, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, those are names we heard. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, so on and so forth. So, these names, Magog, Tubal, Meshach, Gomer, they're sons of Japheth. You're like, oh, okay, well, who's Japheth? Well, again, Japheth was the youngest son. Japheth, essentially, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you might see this too. Japheth and his descendants basically were the people who dwelt in the lands north of Palestine. So you might have a map in the back of your Bible, you might not, that has this, that will show the descendants of Japheth all north, like in Asia Minor, in the areas north of Israel, and, and so on and so forth. And remember in Ezekiel 38, he says he's calling them out of the north. Okay, so these are the sons of Japheth, the, the, basically the Gentile nations, right? Because Shem is the one who is the father of what we call the Semitic peoples. So that would be the father of the Jewish peoples, the father of the uh, Arab peoples, and so on and so forth. And then Ham, of course, his descendants dwelt 
south of the people of God. They dwelled in Africa, in, in North Africa, and in, 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 uh, below that. All right, where are you going with all this? Well, when we see here the reference in Revelation 20 to Gog and Magog, that points us back to Ezekiel 38, and we see all these names where God says to this person, Gog, who is, doesn't, he's only here in Revelation 20, so I'm not sure if he's even meant to be a real person, so, uh, uh, so to speak. But he is gathering all these forces, included, per, including Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. Bear with me here. Okay. So you've got these, these sons, these names that are references to the sons of Japheth who are, who are north of Israel. You've got Persia. Where's Persia in relation to Israel? East of Israel, right? You've got Ethiopia and Libya. Where are they in relation to Israel? South? Okay, so you've got north, east, south. The only direction not accounted for is what? West. What's west of Israel? Water, okay? So, so basically, you've got a collection of nations that surround Israel. And God is calling them all together, all of the nations that surround Israel, that surround the people of God, and he's calling them to battle. He's calling them and gathering them to battle in Israel, on the mountain of God. You can go back to Revelation 20. So when you see here, in verse 8, Satan is released from his prison and he goes out to deceive the nations which are, now you see this phrase, the four corners of the earth. We've seen that phrase before. If I say the four points on a compass, what does that mean to you? Everywhere, right? If I, if I had a piece of paper like this, the four corners of the paper would encompass the entire thing. He is, in, he is gathering all of the nations from all the world the complete set of anti-God nations, all these nations, and we saw from Ezekiel 38, they represent all the nations that surround the people of God, and he's gathering them. Where is he gathering them? To the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And we see, like we saw in Ezekiel 38 and 39, these gathered forces, their number is as the sand of the sea, so it is a mighty number of people gathered together to come against the saints, at the end of the millennium here. So they're gathered to surround the saints here. So the nations deceive, they rally against the people of God, and they surround the camp of the saints. I'm going to look at a couple more passages, if you will indulge me, because this is imagery that we see from the Psalms. In Psalm 2, we've referenced this a few times before in the past. But Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. In Psalm 2, starting at verse 1, the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So the psalmist here in this messianic psalm, this uh, psalm in which we see that the Lord's anointed, of course, that's the Messiah, 
uh, is established, his, his kingdom is established. And it's established when you see the nations rage. The nations are deceived, they rage, and they gather their forces. And of course, as we see at the end of Revelation 20, in that passage we're looking at, the fire rains down. God, when he sees this gathered forces around his uh, holy place, he sits in the heavens and laughs at them. He holds them in derision. Because again, you've got the creatures daring to come against the Creator. And that's not a good decision. And he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. And he says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And of course, then later on, we see that this king that he has set on his holy hill will break them with a rod of iron, verse 9, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So the, 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 the nations that rage against the Lord's anointed, against Jesus and his, and his forces, they will be dashed to pieces. They will be broken with the rod of iron that is given to them. We see another psalm in Psalm 48. I apologize for turning to so many passages, but I think it's good to kind of consider the whole counsel of God at least as much as we can. This is a psalm that glories in Zion, the holy hill and holy city of God. Psalm 48. I actually preached through this about a year ago. Yeah. <laughs> Psalm 48. And in Psalm 48, verse 1, this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the great city, or the city of the great king. God is in her places. He is known as her refuge. And then verse 4. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it, and so, mar so they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them uh, there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. So again, we see the kings assemble against uh, God on his holy hill of Zion, and they tremble in fear. Why? Because God is in the midst of his people. God is in Zion. And that's what we see here. As the nations who have been deceived gather against uh, the holy hill, they gather against the camp of the saints in Revelation 20, verse 9. And what happens? Fire comes down out of heaven. Fire comes down out of heaven and consumes them. That was imagery we saw again in chapter 39 of Ezekiel. And then the devil who deceived them, the one who perpetrated all of this, he is captured and he is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they all will be tormented day and night forever. Again, a picture of final judgment as Satan is judged. He is released so he could be judged. He must be judged. Justice must be done. God must be vindicated and Satan must be destroyed. It is not enough to keep him bound. It is not enough to keep him from deceiving the nations. He must be, he must be let go so that he can be judged fully and finally on the last day. So that is the verses here uh, that we looked at. Um, 
I mean, one thing I, I'll, I'll say here, because there are differing, you know, like there, like there are differing interpretations of what the binding of Satan is and what the first resurrection are. There are some differing interpretations as to who Gog and Magog are. Uh, depending on which pre-mill person you look at, they are, it's a literal confederation of future nations. Some would suggest it's perhaps Russia, which is why when you see in, in, in Ezekiel 38, it says Rosh. They said, well, that sounds like Russia. So they said, that's Russia. Uh, China. I mean, it, it would, geographically, it would fit, right? They, they're coming from the north. They would be of the north of Israel. Um, Post-mill, Amil, see Gog and Magog, essentially a symbolic of the pagan nations who are enemies of Israel. Again, the four corners of the earth suggest that it's all the unbelieving kingdoms. However you want to interpret it, the point is still the same. The enemies of God will be gathered together against, uh, they'll be deceived by Satan, they'll be gathered together, and they'll be fully and finally defeated as the fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And that is the end, that's at the end of the millennium. The next passage talks about then the final judgment as judgment will be uh, enacted. Uh, Jesus talks about this in his Olivet Discourse, his great white throne judgment, but we'll reserve that for next time. Uh, in the time that I have left, I'm not even sure how much time I have left because I didn't set my timer, but um, according to that, it's, so it's 8.04, so I've got a few minutes. Um, I did want to sort of recap the millennium. I want to recap the millennium and kind of put it in a little box and put a nice little bow on it, okay, as much as I can. Because, you know, we've looked at this for three sessions now, and it, it is a difficult passage. It is a, it's, it's difficult in some ways. It's not difficult in other ways. Where it's not difficult is that it tells us who wins, God wins, right? Okay? So it's not difficult in that sense. God wins. The people of God will be vindicated. God will be vindicated. The enemies of God will be destroyed. But it's difficult because of how you interpret some of the symbology in here. Again, which is why I keep saying charity and humility. Because all of the various millennial views that we looked at in the past, as I said before, they are biblical in the sense that they... they take their view out of the Bible. They support their view from the Bible. All of the views are orthodox. None of them are what we would consider outside of traditional, historic, orthodox Christianity. And let's face it, throughout the history of the church, the eschatology has been one that has probably defied the most consensus. Okay, when we're talking about things like salvation... The Trinity, those things were established early on in the history of the church. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone was established earlier on in the history of the church. But eschatology, at least how to interpret some of these things, particularly Revelation, has defied consensus. Okay, Each view has its strengths. Each view has its weaknesses. If, if, if any of the views did not have any strengths, no one would believe them. If, if, if there was a view that had no weaknesses then we would all believe that view, right? So each view has its strengths. Each view has its weaknesses. No one view is perfect. But I'm going to now shill a little bit for, for my view, so forgive me. Um, I will say this. 
Perhaps the single greatest difference between the four views that we've seen in the millennium is this. From a post-mill view and from a pre-mill view, so that's views one, two, and three, those views, they all see the millennium as future. The millennium hasn't occurred yet. If you're a pre-mill, the millennium hasn't occurred yet because Christ hasn't come to end the church age. If you're a post-mill, the, the millennium hasn't occurred yet because the church hasn't started, uh, you know, gaining great influence in the world. You haven't seen this golden age appear yet in the world. But for the mill position, the millennium is now. We are currently in the millennium. It started when uh, Jesus Christ uh, lived, died, was uh, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, and will be completed when he returns at the end of the age. From my perspective, so I'm, I'm putting a caveat there, from my perspective, the pre-mill and the post-mill views, again, the views one, two, and three, have, I'm going to call, an over-realized eschatology. An over-realized eschatology. And what I mean by that is, in my opinion, I think those views take elements of the eternal state and incorporate them into the millennial period. And both views, pre-mill and post-mill, views one, two, and three, also have an under-realized eschatology as it relates to the church age. They do not see the church age as being the entire period, being the last days. Okay, some will, because the millennium hasn't happened yet. Those are the last days. The tribulation are the last days. So they both have an over-realized eschatology as it relates to the millennium, and they both have an under-realized eschatology as it relates to the church age. And the view I hold to, the Amil view, in my, again, in my opinion, you're free to disagree with me, I think has at least presents a more balanced view of the millennium because it recognizes what we see in Paul's writings as the already and the not yet in the sense that we are already seated with Christ in heavenly places, but we are still in this physical body, still undergoing persecution. The church is reigning and ruling, but hasn't been fully consummated. We have many of the blessings of salvation already now, but haven't been fully consummated until the end of the age. We have eternal life now, right? What Jesus says in John 3.16, He who believes in me shall not perish, but he has eternal life. It's your possession now, but you won't see it fully consummated until the end. So we have this already, not yet um, view. And, and think about it. The, the, the church is described in the New Testament by Paul, or by Peter, I should say, as, as elect exiles. Okay, We are sojourners. We are, what's the word I want to use? It, the church, in a lot of ways, is like Israel in exile Okay, in the Old Testament. We are... Pilgrims, we are on our way to our home. This world is not our home. Our home will come when the new heavens and the new earth are, are here. So as a, as a pilgrim people, um, you know, we are called to live in this world, but recognize that our citizenship is in heaven, right? And there are, there are temptations in the other millennial views to either 
look at this age, this world as sort of not worth saving, right? The pre-mill view can tend to, I won't say always does this, but it can tend to lead to looking at this age now as, well, the world is already going to hell in a handbasket. Why should we bother rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? It's going down. Whereas the post-mill view can look at this world and see, no, we must transform society. We must go out and Christianize the world. We must, uh, you know, Christians need to be at every level of society. We need to regain and transform culture, transform uh, the world and all this. But again, most people who hold to the Amil view see the church as a pilgrim people. And as a pilgrim people, like what Jeremiah does when he writes to the exiles in Babylon, he tells them, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. So while you're there, pray for the nation in which you live in. Work for their betterment. Recognizing that this is not your home, but work for the betterment of society. Work for the betterment of your neighbor there. And when, you know, when your exile is done, you'll be returned to the land. And in a sense, that's kind of the view. You know, it's, it's this battle between how you interpret Christ and culture. How we interpret how the church is to in, uh, work in the culture. You have some that say we should withdraw from culture. You have some that say we should transform culture. And then there are some that you, the balanced view is to recognize that, yeah, it's, good, it's a good thing to work for the betterment of society. It's a good thing to, to be kind and to, to, to feed the poor, to clothe the naked, to shelter the homeless. But recognizing that if you don't do that with the gospel, it doesn't matter, right? We, we should work and, and be good neighbors. We should show the love of Christ. We should sh be salt and light in this world, but recognizing, again, that this world is not our home and that this world is passing away and it will, it will not be fully consummated until the end when Christ returns and he brings heaven down to earth. And I think I'll stop there. I don't want to keep babbling on. <laughs> Just, I feel like I've been kind of babbling on here. Uh, again, next time... Uh, Lord willing, on the 18th in two weeks, uh, we'll finish chapter 20 as we look at the great white throne judgment.